Welcome back, everybody, to the David Pakman Show. Luke Beasley here, filling in for David while he is away. We have a wild show ahead of us, so stick around. Let's dive in. Ladies and gentlemen, I have for you the true Twitter files, what should be the actual conversation going on around Twitter, social media platforms, and their role in our political process, specifically the 2020 election. Now, before we dive into these fascinating details, what am I connecting this to? Well, of course, shortly after Elon Musk became the head of Twitter, he started promoting and facilitating the Twitter files. And these were supposed to reveal through the um, analysis of behind the scenes records at Twitter, the way that Twitter went after Trump, treated him so poorly, treated the conservative movement so poorly and unfairly, and made the difference in the 2020 election. Well, as David has done and I've done on our respective shows, when you actually walk through the details of the Twitter files, that is not shown. It's a pretty dishonest narrative because when you dive into it, you realize these claims are not being backed up in the way that they should, and this does not show what people are saying that it shows, right? And so within that context, I want to dive into now a much more profound uh, and fascinating part of this in my mind, which is through the January 6th Select Committee's uh, investigation, a part of it that was previously unseen up until now reveals that actually the exact opposite was going on. Twitter and other social media platforms were giving preferential treatment to Trump, to far-right extremists, out of fear of backlash. And so the opposite was going on than the narrative that we've heard from right-wingers as of late. This is truly interesting stuff. They decided not to include it in their final report um, because a number of reasons. My take on it was you kind of can only get the public to focus on a, f- a few things. You can't give them a million things to focus on with this type of story. And the extensive nature of the report was already going to be um, quite the batch of information to go through, to talk about, and to open up a whole nother can of worms with its whole nother group of controversies and all of that, they didn't see as worth it. And so it wasn't included in the final report, but they did a lot of investigations, a lot of interviews in regard to this exact issue. The Washington Post has a story on it, what the January 6th probe found out about social media but didn't report. The January 6th committee spent months gathering stunning new details on how social media companies failed to address the online extremism and calls for violence that preceded the Capitol riot. The evidence they collected was written up in a 122-page memo that was circulated among the committee according to a draft viewed by the Washington Post. But in the end, committee leaders declined to delve into those topics in detail in their final report, reluctant to dig into the roots of domestic extremism taking hold in the Republican Party beyond former President Donald Trump, and concerned about the risks of a public battle with powerful tech companies. Congressional investigators found evidence that tech platforms, especially Twitter, failed to heed uh, their own employees' warnings about violent rhetoric on their platforms and bent their rules to avoid penalizing conservatives, particularly then-President Trump, out of fear of reprisals. The draft report details how most platforms did not take dramatic steps to rein in extremist content until after the attack on the Capitol, despite clear red flags across the Internet. So, bending their own rules to allow Trump to continue violating their rules without um, being held 
accountable. Now we'll skip over a part of this just for the sake of time that walks through the specifics of why they decided not to include it in their final report. But we'll pick up here titled, Did Twitter Give Trump a Pass? Some of what investigators uncovered in their interviews with employees of the platforms contradicts Republican claims that the tech uh, companies displayed a liberal bias in their moderation decisions. Contradicts that. An allegation that has gained new attention recently as Musk has promoted a series of leaked internal communications known as the Twitter files. The transcripts indicate the reverse, with former Twitter employees describing how the company gave Trump special treatment. Twitter employees, they testified, could not even view the former president's tweets in one of their key content moderation tools, and they ultimately had to create a Google document to keep track of his tweets as calls grew to suspend his account. Quote, Twitter was terrified of the backlash they would get if they followed their own rules and applied them to Donald Trump, said one former employee. So this highlights a few things. The takeaways, I think, should be number one, this flies in the face of, this contradicts, disproves the narrative we've heard from the right wing that there was this big uh, conspiracy against Trump and conservatives in the buildup to the 2020 election trying to take him down. If that was the case, they would not have been doing so much, breaking their back to prevent their own employees from moderating Trump's content, from holding him accountable with the rules they've already had laid out. Number two takeaway, this is absolutely a part of what led to January 6th, what caused January 6th, the ability for this far-right extremism to fester, for these lies to spread. And so everyone has different takes on how we address that, and that's an interesting conversation, but we can just recognize reality and say a big role in all of this, in the January 6th attack, in the lies and the speed in which they were able to spread is the fact that Twitter and other social media platforms um, absolutely did not apply their own rules, their own standards to these individuals the same way they would to somebody else. Um, and then the third is going forward, let's take this as a lesson and let's figure out what are we going to do going forward? And so social media platforms, us just as a country and the kind of public discourse need to sort out. It's going to be tough because we're also having these conversations with individuals that we're talking about being the problem, right? Um, but figuring out how we move forward and not allow this level of deceit, this level of dishonesty, and then the reaction to that by the platforms being to... Um, assist, not necessarily intentionally, but assist in that through their fear of backlash and their lack of uh, enforcing their own rules, we need to figure out how to uh, handle that going forward for sure. Make sure that you are subscribed to the David Pakman Show channel, what you're watching, if you're watching on YouTube right now. And I have a show of my own. Uh, when I'm not hosting this show, I'm hosting the Luke Beasley Show, and you can find that at Luke Beasley, B-E-A-S-L-E-Y, on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Speaking of Trump and Twitter and social media, it turns out Trump is actually wanting to get back on Facebook and start tweeting on Twitter. Of course, his, his account has been brought back on Twitter, but uh, he has not tweeted yet, and he's also lobbying to get back on Facebook. Here from NBC News, mounting a comeback for the White House, Donald Trump is looking to regain control 
over his powerful social media accounts. With access to his Twitter account back, Trump's campaign is formally petitioning Facebook's parent company to unblock his account thereafter it was locked in response to the US Capitol riot two years ago. Quote, Trump is probably coming back to Twitter. It's just a question of how and when, said a Republican who spoke on a condition of anonymity to discuss private conversations with Trump about returning to the platform. Quote, he's been talking about it for weeks, but Trump speaks for Trump. So it's anyone's guess what he'll do or say or when. Another Trump confidant, who also didn't want to be identified, speaking about conversations with him, said that Trump has sought input for weeks about hopping back on Twitter and that his campaign advisors have also workshopped ideas for his first tweet. And then Facebook has not given a direct answer yet, but it seems likely that they might let him back on. And so he shortly could be active on Twitter and Facebook once again. Here's a bit of this being discussed um, on CNN. Former President Donald Trump's campaign petitioning Facebook to unblock his account. That, of course, remember the social media giant locked it in response to the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Let's bring in CNN's Kristen Holmes. She's following this story for us. Kristen, tell us more. So, John, as we know, Facebook's ban was not indefinite. And as we reported last week, the Meta, the parent group, was already having meetings deliberating whether or not they were going to let former President Trump back on its site. In fact, they were taking it so seriously, they had a small working group within the company that was working on that. But now it appears that the campaign is trying to accelerate that process. They sent a letter to Meta asking for Trump to be reinstated and to have a meeting with that parent company. Now, I want to read you one expert excerpt of why they say they think that they should be reinstated. It says, Donald J. Trump is a declared candidate for president of the United States. We believe the ban on President Trump's account on Facebook has dramatically distorted and inhibited the public discourse. Moreover, every day that President Trump's political voice remains silenced furthers an inappropriate interference in the American political and election process. So why does this matter? Well, if you kept up with politics pre and post Trump's social media bans, you remember the significant nature of how that affected his ability to use his megaphone, use his voice to craft and influence the public discourse, the daily conversations. And yeah, now he's on Truth Social and he occasionally says stuff or he's constantly saying stuff. We occasionally cover it, but it's not the same as when he had uh, his voices on Twitter and Facebook, but Twitter most significantly. And so whether or not he starts tweeting again, whether or not Facebook allows him back on will actually affect the next two years and the voice that he has in his presidential campaign and uh, how he's able to leverage that in different ways in a very significant way. And so it's fascinating to watch. It's weird and strange to try to understand why now it makes sense if the past actions they got banned for didn't change why now it makes sense to bring them back who knows but it seems likely that will indeed occur and we will continue to keep up with it follow me on twitter luke p beasley lying republican congressman george santos has told so many lies genuinely and i'm not saying this just as kind of a phrase. I mean, genuinely, it's hard to keep up with all of the lies that he's told. Well, one of the lies he told was that his mom died in 9-11. And we already knew this was a lie, or at least he was lying about one of the claims he had made about this topic, because he said his mom died 9-11. He said both of his parents survived 9-11, 
And he said that his mom in 2021 died five years in the past, which would not be 2001. So something had to be off there. Um, and now we understand it has been confirmed based on immigration records that indeed he was lying. So let me remind you about this first, and then we'll take a look at the new reporting. Here's him saying both of his parents were down there on 9-11 and survived. And I can't believe that that's the reality that we're living in, that I have to hear somebody actually say that the 9-11 memorial is canceled. The same memorial where many New Yorkers, Long Islanders, uh, even New Jersey and Connecticut residents perished. Um, first responders, uh, law enforcement, everybody, you know, people working the towers and media people, everybody just perished. And, and to, 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 I get emotional. My parents were both down there uh, the day of the attacks and uh, fortunately none of them passed. Um, but to, to see that the families of those who lost their loved ones will, will be recused from having. Okay. So you see that there. And then also, which is very contradictory, he said that um, his mother died on 9-11, as you'll see a tweet up on the screen here. 9-11 claimed my mother's life, claimed my mother's life. But then in a different tweet, he said December 23rd, and this is in 2021, this year marks five years I lost my best friend and mentor mom. You will live forever in my heart. So again, I say all those things can't be true simultaneously. Both of his parents can't survive 9-11. His mom died at 9-11 and his mom died five years before 2021. Really doesn't make sense. And now we know for sure that he was lying. Here from the New York Times, um, Representative George Santos of New York has said consistently that his mother, uh, Fatima DeVolder, was working at her office in the South Tower of the World Trade Center during the September 11, 2001 attacks. Even as he altered his official biography to remove other false claims, Mr. Santos' account of ties to the tragedy remained. But official immigration documents reviewed by the New York Times on Wednesday directly contradict that claim too. In an application for a visa to enter the United States filed in 2003, Ms. DeVolder said that she had left the country for Brazil in June 1999 and had not returned since. In earlier paperwork filed in June 2001, three months before the attacks, Ms. DeVolder said that she had been unable to return to the United States since 1999 because her green card had been stolen in Brazil. So now we have confirmation. He was definitely, definitely lying. Absolutely. And each one of these revelations is stunning to me because I just can't comprehend it. And I was explaining on my show, kind of asking myself the question for the audience, why do I keep talking about this? We get it. He's a liar. Why does every single revelation have to be discussed? And to me, it comes down to fascination and accountability. I am fascinated with a human person, a human being who lives in the same world I live in, being able to be this dishonest, this deceitful, this vile. And his dishonesty goes beyond just normal dishonesty that we see in politics. He picks the worst things to be dishonest about. Pulling from, drawing from the trauma and the devastation of people. Saying that he lost employees in the Pulse nightclub shooting. Saying that uh, he had a Holocaust survivors in his family, saying that he had his mom either survive or die in 9-11, and all of those things weren't true. That is so horrible. And so it's fascinating because I can't understand it, and it's wild. And then also, if we are going to hold him accountable, or I should say if he's going to be held accountable, which it doesn't look like he will be, 
it's going to be because this stays in the public conversation. And it's unfortunate because it looks like the only chance for accountability is going to come either with his legal troubles or with uh, his if he tries to run for re-election in two years. The Republican Party standing behind him, and that tells you a lot about the modern Republican Party. But all in all, just really wild stuff. Make sure you're subscribed to The David Pakman Show, the YouTube channel. But then also, if you like what you're seeing here as I'm guest hosting for David today, follow my YouTube channel, subscribe to it, Luke Beasley on YouTube. Quick break. We'll be right back. One of our sponsors today is BetterHelp. Uh, viewers of the show, listeners know I'm a big advocate of therapy. Uh, I think it's important to make it more accessible, remove any stigma that might be associated. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest, figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp is therapy done entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. Switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. I'm a huge believer in talk therapy and BetterHelp is making it more accessible to more people. You can even find a therapist who specializes in certain areas, which maybe you can't find where you are geographically. There are lots of great benefits to doing therapy online. Get it off your chest. Visit BetterHelp. Go to BetterHelp.com slash Pacman show today to get 10 percent off your first month. That's better. H.E.L.P. dot com slash Pacman show. The link is in the podcast notes. One of our sponsors today is Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a convenient alternative to smoking and vaping and the vape clouds, the ashtrays, the thing in your lip that people can see. I've seen that around. This is an easier and less messy way to curb the cravings. And you can use Zipix just about anywhere. Zipix is available in six flavors with two or three milligrams strength. The nicotine and the flavor are long lasting. And Zipix has helped countless people kick the bad habits. And they are bad habits. Zipix toothpicks are FDA registered. Their customer service is second to none. It is one of the most cost effective alternatives also, check out their B12 and caffeine toothpicks. See for yourself why so many people have switched to Zipix toothpicks. You can only get Zipix online. Go to zipixtoothpicks.com and get 10% off with the code PACMAN. That's Z I P P I X toothpicks.com. Promo code PACMAN saves you 10%. The info is in the podcast notes. Welcome back to the show. Luke Beasley filling in for David while he is away. If you want to check me out, you like what you see, Luke Beasley on YouTube. The link should be in the description if you're watching on YouTube. Radical Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene appeared on Fox News with Sean Hannity, kind of continuing in her tour of trying to make herself more mainstream. Let's forget all the past bonkers, conspiracy theorist things I've said and make me a serious congresswoman and conservative media is assisting in that and the Republican Party is assisting in that. Well, 
Especially the third clip I'm going to show you out of this interview really highlights how little both Sean Hannity and Marjorie Greene understand about what they're talking about. And it's honestly really embarrassing um, for these two individuals. But before we do that, the first two clips relate to the removing of certain Democratic Congress people from committees. So I'll show you these and then we'll get to the really bonkers clip. No, not at all. And you can see there's a major difference in the leadership with Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House and Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats removed me from committees from things they didn't like on my Facebook years before I became a member of Congress. But you can see that Kevin McCarthy isn't being political. He's removing members of Congress that need to be removed. It's a So she's correct that Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy are very different in the type of speaker they're going to be, but not in the way uh, that she would believe necessarily. And I'll show you the next clip, actually, and then we'll discuss about this committee's issue. Kevin McCarthy, as Speaker of the House, is doing the right thing and removing these Democrat members that deserve to be removed. Ilhan Omar is another example. She's anti-Semitic and she should not be on foreign affairs. These aren't political things. These are the right things to do. So from the Jewish space lasers believing person, she's saying that Ilhan Omar is anti-Semitic and that's why she shouldn't be on committees. Hmm. Um, But to the point of Kevin McCarthy is not doing these actions for political purposes, but instead for good reason, is completely silly. Because I don't think there's any better reason to remove someone from committees than the reasons Democrats did. Paul Gosar posting that animation of AOC getting killed, and um, then Marjorie Greene and all of her conspiracy theories, the Jewish space lasers, and all of that. Those are good reasons that someone probably shouldn't be serving on committees. It's absolutely 100% political that Kevin McCarthy is taking people off of committees that are perfectly qualified to serve in those positions, but are Democrats. And uh, that's the real reason. Okay, so third clip. Watch them discuss and watch how Sean Hannity sets up the conversation around the debt ceiling and how deeply confused he gets. And then Marjorie Greene just goes along with the confusion. Let me ask you, um, I know the Democrats desperately want to distract from the the issue of uh, the president and classified top secret documents now in four locations. I get that. Uh, So they're trying to gin up the American people on the issue of the debt ceiling. My understanding is that really won't be an issue for a number of months. But when it is an issue, what will Republicans do? Will they be united? What are the things that they will demand uh, in exchange for going along with the debt ceiling? Because the hyperbole, I'm sure, will be out of control. The full faith and, and gov- of the United States government is on the line and credit of the government is on the line. Uh, you're going to shut down the government, and meanwhile, people will still get their Social Security checks, their Medicare, the military will be up and running, uh, and most people get a furlough and they get paid when they get back to work. So all that hyperbole is coming, but what will the Republicans want and will they stay together? Okay, so we will let Marjorie Green answer, but first, let's just kind of break down what was so confused about that setup to the question. What did he do there? He merged the concepts of funding the government and raising the debt ceiling. Now, these things will 
coincide and the negotiations might get intertwined and be going on at similar times. And But the, the funding of the government and the government shutdowns that are threatened is different than the raising of the debt ceiling and us following through on our financial obligations. So he's correct that whenever we get in the negotiations about funding the government, if they don't come to an agreement uh, within the government and the government shuts down, the necessary functions of the government still move forward, but if it goes on long enough, negative consequences absolutely occur. But then he shifted and kind of blended into the full faith and credit in the United States and the fact that we would be in a bad economic situation and we would be losing worldwide credibility if we didn't raise the debt ceiling and follow through on our financial obligations. And blending those two things in his setup to make it seem like it's not a big deal and they're going to fear monger. So whenever you hear it, don't take it seriously. But we should take seriously both of those things. But not raising the debt ceiling could be disastrous. And it's not the time to argue over spending. If you don't want the government to spend as much, you have to push for that when you're deciding on spending. That makes a whole lot of sense, which would be when you're passing bills, uh, when you're debating over the funding of different programs. But when you talk about raising the debt ceiling, that's just following through on financial obligations, spending that's already been committed to. And we must do that to stay credible as um, a government with debt and all of those things. And so he's completely discombobulated setting up that question. But here's her answer. Well, I, I think this is an important issue to talk about, Sean. Thank you for bringing it up. But we also want to point out that Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, Mitch McConnell, all of who have served, if you add up the years they've been in Congress or, or in power in Washington, we're looking at 150 years of four people's combined uh, time in Washington. So they know what they're doing when they kick the can down the road, giving the debt ceiling issue to the Republican majority, which we started here in January. It's an important issue for our conference to come together on, because as you said, the government will keep on running. Yes, people's social... And again, she's merging the concepts. But we will skip forward to a pretty notable part here at the end. ...have to have. I, for right. one, will not sign a clean uh, bill raising the debt, the debt limit. So she won't buy into a clean bill raising the debt ceiling. There it is. And I've talked about extensively now on my show that this is the Republican nonsense we saw foreshadowed with the Kevin McCarthy speakership debacle. And we're going to be experiencing this. I know David has also talked a ton about this. We will be experiencing this for the next two years, and it will be disaster after disaster and debacle after debacle. Carrie Lake is still doing her thing, still lying as much as possible, and uh, specifically, of course, about the election that occurred in Arizona where she lost as much as she doesn't want to believe that she did indeed lose. And so I want to check in on Carrie Lake, what's been going on with her. And it's kind of more of the same, except I think as time goes by, she gets more and more delusional as she gets further away from any reality in which she's even 
on a timeline close to when that election occurred and her delusion just increases as um, the time goes by. So here's her actually getting asked if she would run against Kirsten Cinema for Senate. Yikes, I don't love thinking about that uh, uh, possible reality. Take a look. I know that polling has been done showing that I would beat Kirsten Cinema. And I've had, I'll be honest, I've had many, many people reach out to me and, and all kinds of people reach out to me uh, suggesting that I run for Senate. My focus 100% is on my election lawsuit. The people of Arizona were done wrong. Their sacred vote was trampled upon. And I am fighting to restore honest elections in Arizona. I, uh, you know, I want to be very uh, obvious here, and I'm speaking something very obvious, D.C. is messed up. It's corrupt. Arizona is corrupt. And we need good people in the Senate, in our governor's office, at the, at the state level and at the federal level to fight this corruption. So I am focused right now on winning this election and getting Katie Hobbs thrown out of the governor's office. So the fact that she's still saying she's focused on winning an election that happened in November and the victor of that election has already taken office is wild. And it's what we saw with Trump still calling for him to be president, him to be, uh, you know, put into the White House because of the horrible wrongdoing. And as we'll repeat a million times with these types of claims, you have to have evidence to make such dangerous, dangerous claims. And she doesn't have it. And when she went to court, her lawsuit was thrown out because she didn't provide the evidence. Now she's appealing and appealing, but this is the reality and she just can't accept it. And so it's quite wild to watch. I have a few more moments just to update you on recent interviews with Carrie Lake. Kind of a, a broken record, I'll say. We will not accept defeat because we won this race. The people showed did not up in massive numbers and they are so afraid of we the people the political elite is so afraid of we the people that they stole this in broad daylight they sabotaged election day and if we lay down and let them do this to us now we will never have a country so i'm we will not and luckily we got through the katie hobbs um swearing in without any devastating event uh, brought on by supporters of Carrie Lake. But each time these claims are perpetuated, I get concerned because we know where these lies can lead. And it really is dangerous. Here is another example of her just making the rounds, making the same dishonest claims. If they think they can steal an election and make this movement of we the people, of mama bears and papa bears who care about their kids, of grandmas and grandpas and students just go away, they've got another thing coming because we're going to work through the court system and we will be victorious. We're not letting yep. them. What's interesting is all of those proclamations, we will be victorious and we see with individuals like Mike Lindell always predicting, no, in two weeks, Trump's going to become president once again. And they never seem to learn their lesson. And by they, I mean the followers of individuals like Carrie Lake, Mike Lindell, Trump, who say we're going to be victorious. Carrie Lake saying, I'm definitely going to end up governor. And then when it keeps not happening, why is there no trust lost? One more thing to show you. 
Republican Arizona State Senator Wendy Rogers. I just want to show you how this spreads and how this is still very much a movement that's alive that is very concerning, bolstering these claims and pretending like there's some chance in the world that Carrie Lake could become governor um, before the end of Katie Hobbs's term. Carrie Lake should be our governor. She was elected. It was stolen. And her case is on appeal right now. It will meet the appeals court, which is a three-judge court here in a couple of weeks. It will still go beyond that, irrespective of that outcome, to the Arizona Supreme Court, where we hope for a final uh, justifiable uh, resolution of this situation. We already have a resolution. Katie Hobbs won. Now she's the governor. Um, that is the resolution. So one of the things I talk about a lot is when answering the question of why is it important to talk about individuals like Carrie Lake? She's not in power, neither is Trump, but why should we still discuss them? The reason is while the MAGA ideology lost, I would say, in the midterms and the American people generally were against it, it still is very much prominent within our current political reality and holds a lot of people within that uh you know, ideology. And so to understand the movement, to address and confront the movement, we have to check in with and uh, look at the lies being told by the leaders such as Carrie Lake, who commands that movement. And it is very dangerous stuff going on, as you saw there. If you like what you're seeing and you're watching this um, on YouTube or listening to the podcast or wherever you are consuming this content and you want to check out my show, you can go to Luke Beasley on YouTube. There should be a link in the description if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, quick break. We'll be right back. You know, I have a very acute newfound appreciation for how busy being a new parent makes you. If you have a little one at home like me, here's something really easy you can do to simplify your life. Our sponsor, Little Spoon, is your one stop shop for healthy, easy mealtime and snack time for your baby, toddler, or big kid delivered right to your door. Little Spoon delivers fresh, organic baby food, which comes in single ingredient varieties or multi textured purees. Little Spoon is meals for toddlers and big kids. They're free of junk and taste great. Even the pickiest eaters love them. I've even tried many of them myself. They really are great. Having healthy snack time is so easy with Little Spoon's organic smoothies, which come in convenient pouches in great flavors like strawberry banana shake, purple carrot acai. I love purple carrots. I'm going to admit that my girlfriend and I have had a great experience with our Little Spoon subscription. It just makes life easier. Anything to reduce the chaos is a great thing. Little Spoon is giving my audience 50% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com and use code PACMAN50OFF, all one word. That's littlespoon.com. Get 50% off at checkout using code PACMAN50OFF. That's PACMAN50OFF, all one word. You can find the info in the podcast notes. Republican Senator John Kennedy weighed in on the debt ceiling debacle that's going on right now, negotiations, discussions, Republicans wanting to leverage the debt ceiling 
to push for spending cuts, even though spending cuts should happen when you're weighing spending, not weighing fulfilling your financial obligations. All of that has been uh, discussed. But I want to take a look at a moment with Republican Senator uh, John Kennedy appearing on Fox News and making a point about the debt. And then we'll respond to it. Very fascinating stuff here. Take a look. If you're going to have a party, you have to pay the band. If you're going to borrow money, you have to pay it back. That's true as a moral principle and a principle of practicality. And you, you, don't, you don't have to be a senior at Caltech to figure that out. Now, here's the truth part. Congress had a spending party. More specifically, the House Democrats, not the House Republicans, the Senate Democrats and a whole lot of Senate Republicans had a spending party. I didn't vote to do it. I, I would have been happy with a couple of beers after work. If I don't know how that last sentence connects to what he was saying, honestly. Um, maybe I missed something. But let's just take this as an opportunity to discuss this myth that Democrats are the irresponsible spenders. They run up the debt and the deficit. Republicans have to go in there and clean up the mess. And you hear it all the time. And I was actually hitting, um, or sitting, I should say, at a dinner last night with a friend talking about how it's almost impressive that Republicans, despite the facts not being on their side, have convinced so many people that they are better for the economy, which we know not true, and uh, are more financially responsible with spending. They don't run up the deficit as much. And let's just go through a few pieces I've come across over time that kind of illustrates this. It is not the case, as this New York Times op-ed writes, that Democrats juice the economy by spending money and then leave Republicans to clean up the mess. Over the last four decades, in fact, Republican presidents have run up larger deficits than Democrats. Another piece here from Towards Data Science. While Republicans often claim that they are the more fiscally responsible party, my research suggests otherwise. Compared to Democratic presidents, uh, Republicans are estimated to add between 0.75% and 1.2% more to the deficit as a percent of GDP each year they are in office. And then we'll look at one final chart here that shows you the deficit change, whether up or down, over time. And of course, the reason why we're speaking in terms of deficit is when you're looking at fiscal year after fiscal year, one president will come into power and we refer to the presidential um, party who's in the White House because that's the easiest to understand. Congress could be any which way, but at the end of the day, things have to get signed off for the most part um, by the president and he kind of holds authority over his party through that process, and so we can measure it that way. And what we see is actually Republicans, as this chart shows, have jacked up the deficit. Democrats have often decreased it, and because Biden's presidency is only halfway through, we don't have a whole lot of information um, to share on that yet. But as I was saying, the reason why we talk in terms of deficit is the debt is just Accumulating. It's just on and on and on and on. It gets bigger and bigger. And so saying that this president was president when the debt was at its largest is kind of pointless because even if they got in office and the debt increased one penny, then they would have the largest debt in American history. That's not really valuable. Whereas the deficit is understanding how much of the 
budget is spending beyond what's being brought in in taxes, right? So that's how much each year is being spent beyond what the government is actually bringing in in taxes. And that's where you can understand is the Democrat decreasing that deficit and uh, bringing down how much more we're spending or are they increasing? And often Republicans are actually doing that more, are actually increasing the deficit more, contributing than um, compared to GB and compared to their time as president more to that scary big number that the Republican Party likes to fearmonger a lot about. So John Kennedy there, that's just giving you a historical context because we hear that talking point so often. And if you're in interpersonal conversations where it comes up that Republicans are better for the economy and they're better for um, the debt or whatever it might be, we just understand that's not factual. And even especially with the economy example, as you dive into more and more specific bits of data, you realize how much of a trend this is that under Democratic presidents, even if you control for Congress and uh, different times based on crises, still Democratic presidents are better for the economy. And then we're looking here better for the deficit. So these branding items that Republicans have been able to use so effectively are so often just so dishonest. And so right there, John Kennedy, honestly, should just think more about his own party because clearly, historically, Democrats aren't the ones with the problem. Find me on Twitter, Luke P. Beasley. Mike Pompeo is making pretty clear that he wants to run for president against Donald Trump. And it's interesting to keep an eye on who's kind of considering a challenge to Trump within the Republican Party. Mike Pompeo was the Secretary of State under Donald Trump. Here is a moment from Fox News, where he didn't even try to conceal the fact that, yes, he's planning on running. Process is kind of lay that out. People get a chance to say, whoa, this this is huge. Um, so there is a educational element that is important as well. In, in the end, you got to pay your bills. I am confident that the United States government will do so. Uh, I only worry that we will not begin to change the trajectory of the American economy by growing it and the American and American spending by reducing it. In the meantime, you're running for president, aren't you? <laughs> Good throw, Neil. Uh, <laughs> nice try. Um, and I like that. I, I, I like that. A little passive aggressive. Perfect. Uh, look, uh, we're, we're doing all the things that one would do to right. get <laughs> to get ready. Um, but we're, we're still trying to figure out. We're doing all of the things that one would do to get ready. Well, that's pretty clear. We don't have anything to announce today. Uh, would it be impacted at all by, by Donald Trump? Uh, I mean, he is running. He's the only announced candidate. Uh, you know, you worked with him, and obviously uh, he has said of Ron DeSantis, of course, if he runs, it, it's, to paraphrase, he would be a little disloyal. He's done a lot for them. Do you feel that way? Oh, goodness, no. Um, I was incredibly loyal to America and to the work that President Trump wanted done. Uh, the American people will decide who the next Republican nominee is, and anybody who throws their hat in the ring has the responsibility to go out, compete, make their case, make the arguments to the people of Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, right. and let the American people sort through who they think are. Usually, even right before someone announces, they still do the, I'm not thinking about 2024 answer. He's going, yeah, so we're doing everything to prepare, but I don't have an announcement right now. Okay, cool. So you're running and we're waiting on announcement. Um, but what's interesting is Mike Pompeo for a while now has been making clear that he wants to run. And this whole time, I haven't understood why he thinks that he's likely to do well. I just don't see him as someone who could carry a lot of support 
within the Republican Party. Because you either have to be a Trumpster, which Trump feels, right, because he's running, or a really kind of on-the-fence Trumpster. Here's what I mean, and it's kind of just DeSantis is the only person who fits this mold. If you're going to do well in the Republican primary, all of these individuals I wish would not be president, but uh, within this context, DeSantis appeals to the radicals and appeals more radical than even Trump sometimes with his vaccine comments, right? And also appeals to more moderate Republicans because he comes off less erratic like Trump does. Um, and so he's a little bit more of an official politician type, aesthetic type vibe. And people are tricked by that. And they think that Ron DeSantis is a more moderate Republican and would be fine. And so DeSantis feels that. Mike Pompeo is making clear he's not trying to be a Trumpster, but his claim to fame is being Secretary of State under Trump, and he doesn't really have the charisma, the political abilities, the past successes in my mind to really launch him into such a prominent place in the minds of the Republican base to defeat Trump or DeSantis. just doesn't seem likely, but one of the things I've been thinking about lately, would it be better for Trump to be up against a bunch of people? Mike Pence jumps in the race. Mike Pompeo jumps in the race. Some other Mike jumps in the race. Um, we saw John Bolton jumping in the race. DeSantis. And does that do more damage? Even when we know a lot of those people have no chance of winning? Or is it better for it just to be DeSantis versus Trump and them really tear each other apart? Let me know what you think in the comments um, if you're watching this on YouTube. Definitely going to be an interesting next two years. Republican Congressman Byron Donalds appeared on Fox News. And this was a disaster of an interview, if I've ever seen one, to the point where even the Fox News host had to come in and debunk everything he was saying about the Biden documents versus Trump documents case. Of course, now multiple locations, classified documents have been found um, at Biden's properties or Biden-related uh, properties, and that's being investigated as it should, obviously much less severe than Trump's obstruction and trying to purposefully keep the documents from the National Archives, and that's why the raid was necessary. And we'll discuss that further, but look at this moment where it just does not go well, and the Fox host can't even save Byron Donalds from his own humiliation. Had no problem raiding Mar-a-Lago, but let's go back even before the Mar-a-Lago raid. Donald Trump's attorneys was in negotiations, in talks with the National Archives. They were well aware of what was happening at Mar-a-Lago. So why the FBI raid? You, co you, you compare that to what's happened with Joe Biden at his residence, where yes, the FBI was there, but Merrick Garland didn't do his job in making sure that they were running the, the search and investigation to make sure everything was found and secured. Third question, did Joe Biden's attorneys, do they have security clearance to handle these documents and Apparently continue not. that search? That's a major question as well. Yeah, well, going back to Mar-a-Lago, those negotiations had gone on for more than a year uh, between the Department of Justice, the Trump uh, organization, or not the Trump organization, but the president's post-presidential organization and the National Archives and Records Administration. But at some point, President Trump's attorneys told those entities that all of the documents had been handed over when that wasn't the case, which is what prompted the raid. 
so in terms of the differences here, there do seem to be some, but you believe that there is still a double standard here in terms of how those two things were handled. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. Because here's the other thing. You get leaks to the press, pictures of documents tossed all over the floor. So then he just jumps to a completely different thing. Okay, so even though both of them stayed calm and talked professionally, that was just so, um, I guess the word that keeps coming to mind is humiliating or embarrassing because Byron Donald is trying to go with this new narrative from the right wing that, listen, our concern's not about the classified documents at the end of the day, or I am concerned, but that's not the main concern. The real concern is the double standard. We cannot have a two-tier justice system in the United States, and nothing proves that we have that more than the fact that Trump was raided and Biden wasn't. And so we're going to discuss why that's so absurd, but let's kind of step back for a second and walk through the timeline. As we built up to this, the Trump Mar-a-Lago situation was going on, the documents there, a lot of the uh, right wing, Fox News, Republicans were just covering for Trump, defending him, saying this was a witch hunt. Then the Biden document story breaks. Before any of the right wing is able to get a read on how the left is going to respond, how Democrats are going to respond, they immediately say, see, nobody cares when it's Biden, everyone cares when it's Trump. And then... Every single Democrat, minus a few that I've seen, and as you know, in a wholesale sense, I guess, the left has been very much okay with investigations into Biden. And if there's wrongdoing, absolutely hold the proper people accountable based on the documents. We also make clear that there's a big difference between the Trump and Biden document situation for sure. It's dishonest to pretend that there's not. But there was no, don't talk about that, don't talk about that, as they told us there would be. So then I watched as kind of they had to work up a new talking point to keep with the double standard. Before, it was the left's going to cover up Biden and talk about Trump. Then they realized nobody's trying to cover up and not talk about Biden. So now it's the double standard is Trump was raided, Biden wasn't. But they never go one step further and try to think about why that might be. Do you think raids are necessary in every single investigation? Are raids necessary every single time documents are in the wrong place? No. The raid was necessary for Trump because he obstructed time and time again the National Archives from getting the documents. They were requesting and requesting as the Fox News host had to come in and say there and Trump knowingly lied and kept the documents um, which is why they had to eventually, after being incredibly patient, raid Mar-a-Lago. Biden immediately, him and his team, have complied, have turned over the documents when they came across them, and are fully on board complying with the investigation. Why would a raid be necessary? Explain that to me. Why would a raid be necessary? Genuinely. Very, very strange. Make sure you are subscribed to the David Pakman Show uh, YouTube channel. And I have a show of my own. Of course, today I'm filling in for David while he's away. But if you like what you're seeing, you can go to Luke Beasley on YouTube. Link in the description on YouTube. Um, and I'll see you after a quick break. 
You might remember that a few years ago, uh, the show got hacked and many thousands of dollars were stolen. We never got it back. It's a terrible feeling. It can happen to anyone. But a couple of years ago, we got aura, which really gives us significantly more peace of mind. And our sponsor aura is the app that protects you from scammers by alerting you anytime your info like email, passwords, social security number are found in data breaches. Aura also automatically requests removal of your info from search engines and it can reduce spam calls. Aura alerts you quickly about suspicious credit inquiries, like if someone tries to take a loan out in your name. And Aura's password manager makes it easy to keep your account secure to begin with. Aura also has parental controls for your kids' devices. You can restrict apps or manage screen time, set focus time, make sure they're doing homework instead of binging on YouTube. You can try Aura. Aura free for 14 days at aura.com slash Pacman. Use the free trial to see if your email password are already out there. You may be surprised. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash Pacman to try Aura free for 14 days. The link is in the podcast notes. Vaccination rates for children are continuing to decrease. This is not good. This is causing diseases that were previously not so rampant to get more uh, prominent. And that is bad, obviously. Take a look at this being reported here. Hey there, everybody. U.S. childhood vaccinations have dipped again this year. A new report from the CDC suggests what started as a concern about the COVID-19 vaccine, especially in younger people, is now carrying over into other shots, too, including polio, diphtheria and measles. It's likely one of the reasons cluster outbreaks of diseases such as measles are on the rise. CDC reports show last year it was in the Twin Cities, Minnesota area. Currently, it's in and around Columbus, Ohio. In the Columbus outbreak, there are over 85 cases and can be counting. That was compared to last week's data. But over 30 of those kids were hospitalized, um, and most of those cases were in unvaccinated children. Dr. Denise Warwick is a pediatrician who told me this new report shows overall those receiving vaccines required by most states is now at about 93%. It was at 95% just two years ago before the pandemic began. Hey there, everybody. So I know that decrease may not seem hugely significant, but it is. And to see it starting to be a trend now that we have a number of years um, out from this initial decline that we saw is concerning. Here from Yahoo News, vaccination rates for kindergarten students are falling. Childhood vaccination rates have fallen for the third year in a row, according to a new report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The report found that 93% of kindergartners received state-required vaccines during the 2021-2022 school year, a drop of two percentage points from the 2019-2020 school year. So this is obviously concerning just for health reasons, and we are seeing the effect pretty immediately of this decrease in vaccinations, where We're seeing outbreaks that are unexpected, at least within the context of the last number of uh, years and decades and these types of diseases. If everyone or almost everyone was getting vaccinated for them, we wouldn't have the issues that we're having now with, um, in this case, children. And so then the question is why? And there's more than just the one that's coming to all of our brains right now, but obviously the one that we have the most control over 
is the anti-vax sentiment that spread during COVID. And so it's not to say all of that percentage is to blame. Um, uh, not all of that is the fault of anti-vaxxers, but you have to attribute a good amount to it. And um, that is what we're getting out of the public health community, that now that so many individuals are bought into their political beliefs about the vaccine and how it's maybe a Bill Gates microchip or whatever they believe, uh, they don't feel safe getting the vaccine, so they don't get their kids vaccinated, and it has negative consequences. And so this is another example of when misinformation and disinformation have real-world consequences. It matters. It matters to have the proper sources getting you your information about subjects as important as the health of your children. And unfortunately, too many people in the United States do not have that whatsoever. I have for you, I guess what I would call a MAGA meltdown, but it's a MAGA pastor, okay? Uh, giving, this is Shane Vaughn, giving a speech or a sermon or a remark whatever you want to call it, about Trump and why his followers, his viewers, should support Trump within the context of their religion. And what we're seeing here, listen, this is not anti-Christianity, anti-religion at all. This is, look at the way he's bending his religion to support his cult. It's very, very concerning. You are the 12 disciples that God has called to stand behind Donald Trump. And if Satan can get you tired, Donald Trump loses. Because he cannot do this without you. And they know that. So that's why every day, drama, drama. And then here's what cowards say. I'm tired of all the drama. It's not drama. It's spiritual warfare. Learn the difference. Carnal-minded people think it's drama when the enemy is attacking and you are defending your territory like Donald Trump is. That's not drama. That is spiritual warfare for the nation of America. It's not pretty. It's not fun. It's not clean. But somebody's got to do it. Call me somebody. Somebody's got to do it. Roar 24. I have made up my mind. I'm more determined now than I've ever been to stand behind this president. I'm more determined now to stand behind the anointing. I don't agree with everything the man does, but I do agree with everything that God does. And if God's okay with the man, I'm ready to join hands with every one of you. I need some proof that God's okay with Trump, sir. And sing like the old black churches used to sing, I'm not tired yet. So let's just set aside that end part um, and try to understand. I'm laughing and it's kind of that you laugh so you don't cry situation because a lot of people are bought into this. And I know this anecdotally. Um, and we understand this in the amount of people who are hardcore behind Trump and how that intermingles with their or intertwines with their faith. And so often when I talk to people about this, it doesn't to me seem like 
And again, it's your belief system. Of course, that's completely up to you, but it doesn't seem like you're actually trying to drive your political beliefs with, uh, with something like this, uh, with your faith. It seems like you really want to love Trump. And so then you're kind of figuring out how to say, well, whatever is going on, I know for sure that God loves Trump, so I have to love Trump. Don't exactly explain why God uh, has chosen Trump as the anointed one, as he said there. And when I watch that, I just feel like I'm watching a documentary about a cult, about the Trump cult, you know, 50 years from now. How wild was that Trump cult? It really is a historical event. At one point, he said, you are the 12 disciples that God has called to stand behind Donald Trump. Yikes. And so what is so concerning about this is in politics, it can get pretty heated and you can disagree a lot. But at the end of the day, if you're able to sit down at a table, lay the facts on the table and then disagree about solutions, disagree about minor things. Oh, I thought this was the study that best represents the data. And I thought that is all perfectly within a reasonable political system, and still with people agreeing on basic facts, you'll still fall very differently on different political views, 100%. What we've gotten to now is individuals like this Shane Vaughn make it to where the ideology is such a circle and it is such a, you know an impossible situation to get pulled out of that we can't sit down and talk about facts. I can't even sit down and try to explain to you why I think Trump might be against the Bible because you can trump that all, no pun intended, by saying, doesn't matter. I know for sure that God has anointed Trump. And so it really makes it deeply impossible to get somebody out of that cult. And that is what is so concerning about this. And it's why we have to continue to talk about it and raise awareness. And hopefully by some miracle, pull some people out of it. But I can tell you one thing, it's not going to be Sir Pastor Shane Vaughn. Thank you all for watching today's show. If you enjoyed me hosting, go over to Luke Beasley on YouTube, check out my show, The Luke Beasley Show, and make sure you're subscribed there and to The David Packman Show here on YouTube. We will see you soon.